0: reminder of how we got to first corinthians we are really in a verse-by-verse study through the book of acts as we are watching the work of the apostles we are really watching the work of the holy spirit through human beings as jesus is building his church and this is why i have this overarching umbrella for the book of acts in our study of we're watching god's workmanship we are watching his grace at work through individuals. And as we study this, we're studying a culture 2000 years ago as the Lord is using Paul has saved Paul and he's sending him to different communities. Every single one of those communities has its different nuances. So as he came into Corinth, he was there for a year and a half and a year and a half, but in the book of Acts chapter 18 We only have a few paragraphs describing that relationship with these individuals in that community that were responding to the name of Jesus, to the man Jesus, who is the man, the God, who created the heavens and the earth, one with the Father, one with the Spirit. This culture is responding this letter in Corinthians, we get further insight into this relationship. So that's why we're here studying 1 Corinthians. So Paul is in Ephesus. He's across the ocean and he's writing this letter and he's sending this letter. But he's sending this letter in response to the church in Corinth has sent individuals to Paul. They sent them there, and they're asking a bunch of questions. Now, Paul is responding to the testimony that these individuals are giving to him about what's going on in the believing community in Corinth, and he's responding directly to their questions. And the issue with this church, it's an awesome church. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are filled with love for Jesus Christ, but it's filled with people. And as you sit in our different relationships as people— In all of our issues, mine included, we cause a lot of issues. So there's issues going on in Corinth, and this is what Paul is correcting. There's division in the church because they're they're divided over exalting man rather than being focused on Jesus Christ. So in the first section of this letter, Paul is correcting their hearts. Get your attention back on Jesus. Not exalting man. No man died for you. Jesus died for you. That attention. In there, they're... In these damaged relationships in the body, they're suing one another. Not modern suing, but when they had a conflict in this culture, they went to the judges of the community to resolve the conflict. And Paul says, don't go to unbelievers to resolve this conflict. Don't you have wise men in the church that can address these issues? And he corrects that. In further relationships, you have some in the community that are saying, hey, when it comes to relationships between men and women, everything goes. And then you have the other camp that is saying when it comes to relationships between men and women, there shouldn't be relationships. Nobody should be married. Everybody should be serving Jesus. And Paul corrects both of those attitudes. Same thing when it comes to, and in that, again, there's this, the exhortation is flee from all forms of sexual immorality and walk in God's created order, how he created men and women in union, in marriage together in him. Same thing when it comes to idolatry. This culture has come out of their false gods and come into faith in the true and living God who created the heavens and the earth. So, But in this community that they still live and abide in, they have all those pressures, those traditions, those cultures that they've been called out of. Some are weak in that, some are strong in that. Paul addressed the flee from all forms of idolatry and walking in relationship with the God who loves you, who has created you. These are all the issues that he is dealing with. And then after that, a major section he's dealing with, what does church look like? What does the gathering of believers look like when you come together? They had issues that needed to be corrected and ultimately the heart is let all things be done in decency and in order and in love in the name of Jesus. And now we're shifting on to the final couple of subjects. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because uh, the, the declarations in here are awesome. So let's pick it up. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, a noun, which I preach to you. This is the verb of the gospel. So, this is the conveyance of the good news. I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. So, he's going to remind them of the message that they heard and that they responded to, which you also received. You took, you seized it for yourself. You latched onto that message in faith, and in which you stand, by which. Also, you are saved, you're rescued. He's going to talk about what we're rescued from. If you hold fast, if you possess the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Again, so he's before he's going to address the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's he's reminding them, recommunicating to them the message which brings them into the church to begin with. And again, it's all about the name of Jesus. Four. I deliver to you first of all that which I also received. Here's the gospel in its basic form. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And this again, there's a, there's a lot of definition. We're not going to press into it. This, but when we say Christ, this is the Jewish Messiah. You sit in the scriptures of the Old Testament and in the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. There is much definition behind who this individual is, who is predicted to be, all that he was predicted to do. That Christ died. This Messiah, this individual died for a purpose, for our sins. Those things which separate us from the God who created us. According to the scriptures, again, it's predicted, 2, verse 4, that he was buried. He was really, really dead and he was really, really put into a tomb. That he rose again, he woke up The third day, according to the scriptures. Again, there are Old Testament prophecies that you ought to know and be familiar with. The biggies. You know, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16. These passages that predict centuries before these events happened. That all of this is according to God's plan. That he was seen. And this is this word seen. That he literally appeared in person, in flesh. Is the idea. He was manifest. He appeared. He was seen by Cephas, who is Peter. Then by the twelve. So the twelve apostles. Judas is excluded from that. So the assumption there that that, uh, Matthias would be numbered with the twelve there. Those of you who are familiar with Acts 1, verse 6. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. And this, the word asleep, this is a metaphor for death. Because somebody who is dead, they're asleep. There is a resurrection coming. There is a waking up is the, the imagery that's being given. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, this would have been uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. Then by all the apostles, and take note that, that the apostles there, this is a separate group than the 12, believed to be at least uh, the, those 72 individuals that Jesus sent out. So the 12 disciples plus the 60 others, a larger group of apostles. Jesus appeared to them, revealed himself to them, manifested them, himself to them. And again, this is all based on eyewitness testimony. And this is, uh, this is huge in ancient culture. It's huge in I, our culture when we come to uh, eyewitness testimony to the truth about what has happened in the past. Verse 8, the last of all, he was seen by me also. Paul did not just have a vision of Jesus. Jesus revealed himself in his resurrected form to Paul as one born out of due time. And this is a, that word out of due time, it's, it, it was an abnormal, unique act that occurred. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. And I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So this is what Paul is doing. He's setting up to their minds, again, refocusing them back on Jesus before he deals with the topic of the resurrection. Because the question's gonna be that there's a teaching in this community that there's no resurrection for the dead. So Paul is going back to Christianity 101, the basics. When I came into this community, this is the gospel that I preached to you, that I conveyed to you. This is the message that you stand in. This is the message that you believe. You believe that this individual, Jesus, who is identified as the Christ, when he died on that cross, his body was broken and handed over as a sacrifice for your sins. Those things, that thing which not only separates you from God, which ultimately is your death. And this is, again, this is, this is the, the greatest horror that we can think about in life is death. Everything that we are doing in our community and in our culture right now, all this social distancing, the wearing of masks, the washing of hands, the, the keeping people distance from each other, its ultimate foundation is to keep people from dying because people fear death. And the only hope of freedom from death is the message of what the man, Jesus the Christ, did on the cross. And this is what we stand in. So Paul is reminding them of the message that they seized, that they took hold of. So remember this, because he's going to go through a logical argument. For those in the room, I'm going to do a little side note here, because... I know most of you, most of us here are not struggling with the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you want to handle on something to walk out with. Just look at Paul's heart in verse 9. This church has, this church being Corinth, and we can say this church, us, and I'll point my fingers at myself too. We have a pride problem. We, we exalt ourselves. And look at the example of Paul here. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. I think Paul would, uh, you know, I, I get identified as Pastor Blake. And when I, hear the word, when I hear that, Pastor Blake, I want to kind of look around and who's the pastor? Because it's, it's really, I am not worthy to be called a pastor. It's not something that I trained for. It's not something that I pursued. All I've done is I've pursued the Lord. So it's a weird title for me. It's weird that this is what the Lord is doing with my life because when I look at myself in the mirror, I don't see any worthiness at all. Lord, you can't tell me that there's not a thousand other individuals in this community that can do a better job than me. I'm confident that there are, Lord. I'm not worthy to be called this. I'm not worthy to do this with my life. I'm not worthy to serve the Lord. I know all my brokenness. I know all the things that get left undone every single day. Come on, Lord, isn't there somebody who can do this better? But then the Lord's always there in encouragement. But by the grace of God, I'm what I am. This is the life that God has given to me. This is the context that he has given to me. And I want to be like Paul and follow his example. Lord, help me to labor more abundantly than them all. And I don't want to be in competition with anybody. But at the end of the day, when I go throughout my Groundhog Day, like right now, every day feels like Groundhog Day. Rinse, wash, and repeat every single day. A lot of the activities that I do and a lot of the activities that you do, we can look at them and say, Lord, what's the point? What, is it, what does this have to do with eternity? What does this have to do with my relationship with you? Well, and again, and I, even in all the little things, we're supposed to do those things as unto the Lord. How I interact with my bride, how I interact with my kids, how I interact with you. The law, the yard still needs to be mowed. All these activities need to be done. My job is accounting. Do you know how boring accounting is? Asher asked me yesterday, Dad, I really do want to know about accounting. I was describing to him in the car yesterday double-entry bookkeeping it's boring. But the accounting that I get to do is in the name of Jesus. The, this job, this function that needs to be done, it is for the name of Jesus. It is for the advancing of his kingdom, for the advancing of the gospel. So Lord, praise you that this is what I get to do with my life, even though sometimes every afternoon I want to take a nap, so give me coffee. But look at what he says. I am what I am by the grace of God alone. He has created me. He is sovereign over my life. He has given me favor that I absolutely do not deserve. Who I am and where I am is all because of God. So that the work that I do and the work that ultimately that he is doing through me, may his grace produce the fruit of that he has created me and called me for. And again, this is something that all of us need to press into. God has given to you the gift of grace. He has created you and he has saved you. And in open hands, how is his grace at work in your life today? What promises has he given you for the future? How are you working more abundantly than they all? And define that. In diligence, letting the grace of God not be given to you in emptiness, but be given to you and working in you and through you for the sole purpose of why God made you, which ultimately is that you would have a relationship, an intimate, deep, growing fellowship interaction with the God who made you every single day And that he would bring himself glory through all that you do as you get to interact with other human beings. Not focused on the task, but focused on the name, the person of Jesus. So Paul gets all of this squared away before he addresses the question. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been risen from the dead, this is what we communicated to you. How? How? How is it that some among you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? It doesn't make sense. Verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, yes. And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's powerless. It's fruitless. And you are still in your sins, what well, I can't think of any greater miserable experience than to, than to have that. Like I believe in Jesus, and I know that He's risen from the dead, and I am clean. To to be to have that um, idea. That my sins are still upon me and I am shackled by them and I am still filthy by them and I have no hope. I can't think of anything personally more miserable. Because this is why I cried out to Jesus in the first place. Because I was in misery. So in verse 18, he says, Then also those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, they're perished, they're destroyed. If in this life only we hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, the most miserable. So when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the name of Jesus, when we talk about the resurrection, all of this information, ultimately, what are we talking about? Victory. Victory over what? Over the thing that has a grip, a death grip on every single human being, which is death. This is, again, we're, we're sitting in, this, in our culture every single day. Most of the things that we do, everybody's trying to seek and find a fountain of youth, right? We all want to stay young and fit and trim. We're doing everything that we can do to extend life as much as possible. But again, the victory, the simple victory, the simple proclamation, because Jesus has risen from the dead, I am free from sin. I have been rescued, saved, delivered from sin, from death, from my filth, from that bondage. And this is why the the proclamation of the gospel is just, yes, I have life and I have hope, not in this life only, but for all eternity. But now, verse 20, now Christ, he is risen from the dead. And he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, so by Adam came death, by man, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. Adam bore the image of God. Adam and Eve rebelled. The simple act of rebellion did something that God said don't do. Now all bear the image of Adam and all die. Even so, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Messiah, all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Jesus is coming. Hold that, we'll come back to it at the end. Then comes the end. And he delivers the kingdom of God the Father. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. That of the flesh and that of the spirit. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is our enemy. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he, being the Father, who put all things under him, Jesus, is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all, that God would be supreme." So, not only the death, burial, resurrection, and us stepping into that relationship, but we are all waiting for the coming of Christ when he is going to put an end to all other authorities and power. He is going to rule and reign for all eternity and holiness and in majesty. Under In this relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and us together as one with God, that God may be all in all. What a message. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now pause here. Um, One, this is a very weird sentence. Um, I came to faith in Jesus Christ in Salt Lake City, Utah, Uh, For the Mormons, this is when you look at the different temples that they have built, one of the activities that they are doing in those buildings is that they are being baptized for the dead. Genealogies are huge for Mormons. Genealogies are huge because they believe that their dead ancestors who didn't hear the message of Joseph Smith and died before hearing that message, that they need to be baptized as a work so that they can achieve all the things that their message is proclaiming. That's how they latched onto this verse, and this is the teaching that they teach there. So that's kind of Mormon weird side of things. And I just bring that up because that's my context of where I came to the Lord and things that I've studied. But what's going on in the passage? Nobody knows. This is one of the information that every single one of the commentators on this sentence have to say, I don't know. Because what's going on, the plain language, it seems that there are individuals in Corinth who are being baptized on behalf of people who have died. I mean, that's the plain interpretation of the text. There are some who think that the word baptism there is a metaphor. When Jesus says, asked to James and John, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? Jesus talking about his death, not water immersion. Some think that, some tried to change the language from being uh, baptized for the dead to being baptized unto death. That's not what the language says. So I bring that all up to say that. This is a very weird sentence. We have to have open hands and say, we don't really know what Paul is talking about in dressing because we don't have enough of the information. But however, here's how we can apply this and this is why I'm pausing on this because much when we look at the behaviors of the church throughout history many things are formed by the teaching of individuals the tradition of men some practices get really weird and there's no definition for them other than somebody thought hey this is a good idea and this is what God is telling us to do let's start doing this and you go on down the road and generations later people are still doing activities and they have no idea why When it comes to this idea of being baptized for the dead, do you know of any other place in the Bible that talks about this practice? Zero. Did Jesus ever teach about it in the Gospels? No. When we read through the book of Acts, which we're studying through the Acts verse by verse, is this something that the church was doing in any community that we are being instructed to do? No. So we sit in the rest of the letters of the New Testament. Do we have any instruction, teaching, clarification on this kind of activity? We don't. So there's this weird verse in the Bible that some people would latch on and say that this is something that we ought to do when we have no further instruction on it. And I bring this up to say is like the Bible is what is to give us the rules, the instruction, the clarification of those things that we are to participate in. Did Jesus teach about communion? In the Gospels, we see Jesus teach what communion means. Do we see the church in the book of Acts practice communion? Yeah. Do we see Paul give clarity and teaching about communion in the letters? Yeah. So we know that this is something that we ought to participate in as we gather together. Now, moving on from that weird verse to Paul saying in verse 30, and again, we can see the application of the argument, because he's talking, why would, and there's this idea, of, he's talking about they, something that they're doing out there, but why do we stand in jeopardy and danger every hour? Paul's saying, they're talking, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, why do I live in danger Every hour of every day. Verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. This is this, he's talking about the hardships that he lives underneath in the name of Jesus. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, (laughs) then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And here's the exhortation, the drilling down to the point do not be deceived. This is Jesus' warning to all of us also. Take heed that you be not deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Proverb right there earlier on, he mentioned uh, a little leaven leavens the whole month, uh, the whole lump, the whole month. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Evil company corrupts good habits. He's talking about false teaching, false doctrine. What do you mean that there's people in your community that are saying that there is no resurrection for the dead? Uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the whole reason you are a community. Don't be deceived. This evil company, it's corrupting your good habits, good behavior. Awake, literally, sober up to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised up? Great question. With what body do they come? Foolish one, literally fool. And this, you know, we don't call each other fools. This is part of the the rhetoric, the, you know, how they debated in the time. Uh, It would snap somebody to attention. Fool, what you sow... Is not made alive unless it dies. Talking about seeds. What you sow. You do not sow the body that it shall be, but a mere grain. You put a seed in the ground, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases. And to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies left over from the King James. Thank you. The language is there literally heavenly bodies. So bodies of angels and earthly bodies, bodies of men and women. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun as a source of light. There is another glory of the moon as a reflector of light and another glory of the stars. Again, the stars... We know them to be these giant gas balls really far away, but from our perspective, uh, their brilliance is very small in comparison to the moon and sun. The one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised. I love all these promises here. You will be raised in incorruption without decay. It is sown in dishonor. You, in the name of Jesus, you will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. How weak we are. You will be raised in the power of God. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There's something new that's coming. It's going to be awesome. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, in Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And we have borne the image of the man of dust. We are all bearing the image of Adam in this corruptible, decaying, weak body. We shall bear the image of the heavenly man. What hope that we have. In Jesus, verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, a revealed truth, something that was hidden that has now been revealed. We shall not all sleep. Remember that metaphor for death. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought past the the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Listen to this, this is a taunt to death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, oh, hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, conclusion, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And look at this, He's, uh, he's correcting a false teaching in the church in regards to there being no resurrection. Walking through the imagery, walking through the reality, walking through the word of God in regards to who Jesus is and what he has done. And ultimately, there is this victory that Jesus has given to us that through the name of Jesus, through the person of Jesus, through his work, through his power, through his authority, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, through his ascension, through his return, through all that he is, we have victory. And again, like I said, as we sit in life when I sit in the outside world, I'm, I'm really pessimistic. I'm kind of fatalistic in ways. And um, I don't see hope in the country. I don't see hope in the culture. Uh, I don't see hope in the conversation. Uh, and usually when I, when I in, even mix in that, it's usually like, God, like, wash my ears and wash my, like, I don't want, um, I get really forgetful very quickly and needed to be reminded daily of the gospel about who Jesus is and who I am in him and to remember the grace that he's given to me to remember that it's it's not me that's working his grace is working in me to transform me to make me into who I could never be apart from him and then you get all of the promises that we have in him every single one of us are in aches and pains in our bodies Every single one of us know what decay and what it's like to be weak and you work hard and you work diligently and you know, for what and what's the purpose? And again, it feels futile, it's depressing, it's discouraging. Then you remember Jesus or you walk with Jesus and he's always before you and all of a sudden there's peace and there's elation and there's wonder. I am going to be raised in his incorruptible, glorious image, not just me, but all of us together for all eternity, and I just melt. And then the exhortation for me today and for you today is, therefore, Blake, church, be steadfast. Be immovable in your relationship with the Lord, always always in everything that you do, abounding, So much more, day after day, in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Last subject matter that he picks up in chapter 16 is this now shift subject concerning the collection for the saints. As I have given orders to the church of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. When I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. And here's the idea. Just in the community, again, we can sit in in all the different principles and what generosity looks like in a community of believers taking care of itself and all the different nuances that need to occur. This particular collection that is going on is there is a need in Jerusalem. So you can sit in the earlier chapters of Acts where things were going well, the churches, the people are selling property and they're pooling all their resources together and they're taking care of each other. That system didn't last for long. The church in Jerusalem is finding itself impoverished. And as Paul is going to these different areas, he is taking up a collection for those who are able to support the impoverished church in Jerusalem. So that's what this particular collection is for. But when Paul comes back to Corinth, he doesn't want to sit there and start tapping on people's chest of, where's your money? Where's your collection for these poor? Let all this done before I even come, so that when I do come, the collection is ready, and that you as a church, you get to send your ambassadors, your representatives with your gift to the body of Christ in Jerusalem. And if I get to go with you, praise God, then I'll go with you. And that's what ends up happening. This subject comes back up in 2 Corinthians, which we're going to get into in a few weeks. So verse 5, it says, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. So he's in Ephesus, this this trek we see in Acts 20. For I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you. that uh, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. I find that a fascinating truth. When God opens a door of opportunity for you, More often than not, there is a great amount of opposition coming against you from stepping into those opportunities that the Lord gives to you. Verse 10, if Timothy comes, so he is sending this letter by Timothy, see that he may be with you without fear. He does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, remember the beginning of the letter, the, the church, there's divisions. Hey man, I, th- I think Apollos is the guy and hey, I think Peter's the guy and hey, I think Paul's the guy and hey, I think Jesus is the guy. Paul wanted to send Apollos, hey, would you, would you go to the Corinthians and, and help straighten these things out? He says, I strongly urged him to come with the re- brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. Apollos, uh, Paul wanted him to go. Apollos doesn't think that he should. He says, however, he will come when he has a convenient time, literally when there's the right occasion. And here's major exhortation. Watch literally means get up, stand up. And stand fast. So, the, the idea is somebody kind of, you know, just laying down, not paying attention. The exhortation to the body of Christ. This is repeating Jesus' words is what? Get up. Remember Jesus saying, Can you, Could you not watch with me for one hour there in the garden? Get up. Stand. Get on your feet. Stand in the faith. Be brave. Literally, be manly. And wisdom, and courage, be a man. And this is, again, the exhortation is to men, it's to women. But that, that idea, be, be brave, be courageous in the faith, in Jesus, not apart from him. Be strong in your mind, in your heart, in the spirits, in the Lord. Again, every single one of these an imperative command. Get up. Stand in your faith. Be a man. Be strong. Let all that you do be done. With love. Being a man doesn't mean being a jerk. Being a man means loving like Jesus. You want to look at a man's man? We look at Jesus Christ. Verse 15 I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That you submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Paul needs to give this because look at the next one. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit in yours. And therefore, acknowledge such men. These guys, they brought the letter from Corinth and they brought all of Corinth's problems to Paul. So now that Timothy is going back, these men are going back. Paul is telling the community to esteem such as this, who are devoting their life to the service of the saints in, in Corinth. But how do you think you would feel if you were on the receiving end of this letter and you were one of the ones who was out of sorts? When you get corrected, do you put your dukes up or do you just immediately subject yourself to inhumility? And when I, uh, unfortunately, when I get corrected, usually my self-defense comes out and um, I'm a jerk and then I have to backpedal and confess even further. I bring that up because we're going to see it in a minute. Verse 19 says, The churches of Asia greet you. So they're in Ephesus. All the churches are greeting them, Aquila and Priscilla. Remember, this is the couple that Paul met there in Corinth and worked together with them. They have gone on with Paul. They greet you heartily in the Lord. With the church that is in their house, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. He's putting his signature to this letter. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. That word, ananthema, it is the strongest condemnation that you can speak. And then a a call to the Lord Jesus to come. O Lord, come. Maranatha is the Aramaic word. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. Now... I just mentioned that how would you feel if you were on the receiving end of that letter? Some of you would do well, some of you wouldn't do well. We're gonna pause, and because this... At the end of this, and we want to deal with the culture too and just things that are going on, we're going to step into Matthew 24 and 25 over the next few weeks and use that as our outline to discuss what's going on in the world, what's going on in the culture, the signs of the times, the end times. This is all conversation that we have going on. What, what instruction did Jesus give to us? that we ought to be looking for as we watch for him. How are we to follow him? How are we to process through all of the things that we are seeing in our culture? So that's what we're going to sit in for the next few weeks before we get into 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a painful letter. It is a letter that Paul writes to the Corinthian church because it seems as though that this letter that we just read through, the church did not receive it well. There are heavy tensions. Paul is pouring out his heart to them as a pastor, as a fellow believer, who he is in Christ, how he served them, how he's serving the Lord. The greatest exhortation is in 2 Corinthians is you, as the Corinthians, you need to be reconciled to the Lord. And it's one of those sentences. It's buried in the letter. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of emotion. But it is a pastor's letter to people that he loves that have major issues with him so even as we just sat through corinthians for the last five weeks or so what do you do with the information the corinthian church seems to kind of they put up their dukes they're fighting against the lord and they're out of sorts with the lord and they need to be reconciled with the lord They seem to be out of sorts with Paul. That they, again, it's, who are you to tell me? Where are you? You're not not even here, Paul. You keep saying that you're coming. You you haven't shown up. You don't care about us. You don't love us. Yay, processing through all of these emotions. But as often, we sit through the context of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. We teach it. We communicate it. We preach it. We sit in it. We want to live this out because this is how we are corrected. And again, this greatest exhortation that I have for this morning is that in Jesus is our victory. Worship team, come on up. But just, just everybody, just close your eyes and just meditate on what it is that Jesus has handed to you. Here, here's a gift. Here's a present. Here's the box that he is freely giving it to you. And he's telling you to open the package. And in that, as you open the package, there's, there's things that are surprising. There's things that are encouraging. And it's one of those boxes. There's, there's so many different items in there of, of promises and things that he's given. That uh, as we, It seems like as you stare further and further into the gifts that he has given, there's greater and greater wonder that pours out. But ultimately, in that gift, he has given to us this victory over death. And just think about where the conversation that the Holy Spirit led Paul through this discussion. If Jesus is not risen, if that man was killed and he's still dead, every single one of us is dead. But because that man rose again from the dead, he was seen, they watched him ascend to heaven They experienced the Holy Spirit being poured out on them. They were instructed and taught. You have all these Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled. You have all this instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples that is coming into greater and greater light in regards to the reality of the things that they've experienced. And we, over time, we are stepping into this same message. And here's where I stand. I have victory. My mind is clean. My heart is clean. My mouth is clean. My hands are clean. I confess to you, Jesus, that I was born in sin, that I've lived in sin, and I've cried out to you to cleanse me and to wash me and to purify me. And the truth of your resurrection, it is, it is the evidence, it is the singular evidence that I have to the reality of the freedom that I stand in today, the victory that I stand in today. I don't have to be afraid of COVID. I don't have to be afraid of losing my job. I don't have to be afraid of death because I know when this man falls asleep, when I open up my eyes, I am going to stare into the face of God. The being who created that, who has the power to speak this universe into existence. This being who has created me specifically because he loves me. And the same love that he has for me, he has for every single person. And everybody who receives him and steps into that victory has hope and confidence. Yes, you're weak, but man, look at in your weakness, his grace, his grace is sufficient. He will cause you to be strong. He will give you the courage that you need. He will provide exactly what you need in the moment that you need it so that he gets the glory. God, I don't want I don't want to just like say these things emotionally, Lord. I believe I am. I am alive in you. And whenever I try to live apart from you, Lord, I just feel miserable and wretched. But in you, Lord, I feel beautiful and loved and cared for and attended to, and I have hope for the future. I have hope for this congregation. I have hope for these people as we all surrender to you together that we would love well, that everything that we do, Lord, that we would be awake, that we would stand in you, that all that we would do would be in the love that you demonstrate through your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.